Glad to see you here today. There was a story that I heard back in, uh, it was back in 2018. It was about a young boy named Jesse Hernandez. And Jesse Hernandez was walking around an abandoned building in Los Angeles, and he fell. He fell 25 feet into the city sewer system. And he landed in two feet of sewage. And he was down there for a while. As a matter of fact, the Los Angeles Fire Department took 100 different firefighters, and they had to explore 2,400 feet of sewer pipe before they were able to find this young man, if they were going to be able to find this young man. One fireman said survivability diminishes in that toxic environment. And I saw some photos. I was looking through what it would have been like in that sewer system to have been that young man. It was pitch black. Again, two feet of ice-cold sewage. And I've tried to put myself there and ask myself the question, what would I be feeling if I thought this was going to be my last few moments on earth? Would my Savior meet me there, or would I feel desperately alone? What would those moments be like? You know, I've had the privilege, because of the position I'm in, of being with people in those last moments. When death was going to be right around the corner, there was one situation I was around that still haunts me. It's heavy. I debated if I wanted to share it, but I'm, I'm going to share it with you. There's a man back in West Virginia. He was uh, a self-proclaimed atheist. He was a brilliant man. He was a, had a Ph.D. Uh, in, in, I believe it was chemical engineering. And he would have nothing to do with Christ or the gospel. And he ended up getting sick. And I remember going to see him in the hospital. And I would ask him, would you mind if I prayed for you? He would, he would say yes. I would pray for him. When I was done praying, I would look up. And he made sure he was glaring right at me with eyes wide open. So I would know that he was not participating in the prayer. That was okay. He was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's. And when he was put into hospice care it was evident that he was fighting, and he was fighting hard. As a matter of fact, he was jerking his body around that room, and I knew exactly why. Because as it came closer, that moment, when he was going to be drawing his last breaths, I think he started to get a sense of what was ahead. As a matter of fact, one of the nurses in hospice shared with his wife. I don't know why she shared this with his wife, but she did. She said, I asked him, why are you fighting so hard? He said, I am terrified down to my soul. This man who was an atheist suddenly came to the realization that there was a part of him that was not going to die with his body. It was going to continue on. What I want to talk about this morning is how do we face this moment? Not just for ourselves. How do we face it when it's someone we love? When the immediacy of this life event of death is going to happen, how are we going to handle it? And the text I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 11. It's a lengthy passage, John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 17 through 37. And in this passage is the introduction to both death but also resurrection. It's about a man named Lazarus who's already passed away. 
He's been buried, and now Jesus is going to be coming onto the scene. And we'll see it here in this passage. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 11, we'll be starting with verse 17, reading down through verse 37. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And she heard it. She rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You may be seated. This morning we are moving towards the cross and the empty tomb. And we have much to learn. And this season always pulls us toward a hope. And as Kevin said already, something that we can celebrate the entire year. We put special emphasis on it here in this Easter season. But this year, given the world the state is in, by the way, which really hasn't changed all that much, we're calling it Christ in the chaos. I'm moving forward towards the end of the book of John so we can see these passages, these last moments that Christ was spending with his disciples. And then we'll talk about the hope on resurrection morning of the full resurrection. But we start seeing glimpse of it today. It's a precursor, a prefiguring of the resurrection of Christ that we're going to be looking at this morning. And this morning I hope that we can stand with this group of men and women grieving the loss of a loved one. At the same time, not even fully comprehending What is about to happen? And we get to witness a lot in terms of both the power and the comfort of our Savior. And so we'll go through the text this morning. First, we'll see that Christ enables a death-defying faith. And then secondly, that Christ exercises power over death. 
And then we'll talk about the joy for today and the hope for tomorrow that Christ gives. We'll talk about how that works itself out in our lives. So first, let's talk about the enablement of this death-defying faith that we're talking about. We come to our passage today hearing that a man named Lazarus has died. And Jesus, in his classic fashion, uh, he knew well in advance what was going to happen. And he's preparing his disciples, just like he's been preparing his disciples for his ultimate death and ultimate resurrection Here in this prefiguring, this precursor to his own death and resurrection, he's preparing them for what's going to happen. They're always so surprised when it happens, though. But he reveals that this is a necessary part of the plan, what they're going to see with Lazarus here in just a few moments. If we look back in verse 4 in chapter 11, it says, But when Jesus heard it, this is talking about Lazarus, what had happened to him. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then in verse 11, he gives further hints about what's going to happen. He says, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Again, in verse 14, he makes things perfectly clear, 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So he's prepping the people like he preps us. This is what is going to happen. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? So it's a precursor, a picture of another resurrection that's going to be coming in just a few days. So we get into the passage that we read today. We find out Lazarus, he's been dead for four days by the time Christ arrives. Now that time period is important It has been four days because there was a belief among the Jews that for the first three days after a person's death, the spirit just kind of hovered around the body. It hadn't fully departed yet. It didn't fully depart until the spirit saw the body starting to change. Then the spirit would depart. That would happen, they thought, four days afterwards. So the soul was not just going to find its home again. And the text shares with us that many had come to visit and console the two sisters. It's a very tight-knit community. When someone died, it impacted everybody. As the text says that Bethany was near Jerusalem, Jesus had to take great courage in going even to Bethany because by this time in the book of John, many were seeking to kill him. And those people were primarily in Jerusalem. So on the on word that Jesus is approaching, one of the sisters, Martha, runs out to meet Christ. And look at her response in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now she calls him Lord. That'd be like calling him sir, not necessarily saying that you are the Lord. She's got some belief that he's God. She's still putting that together. And she's not being contentious or critical of Christ for not being there. That's not the point. She's expressing her faith in his ability. And one paraphrase of what she just said could be, if you had been here, you could have healed Lazarus. Nevertheless, I still believe in you that God works through you mightily. So she hasn't lost confidence in him. She may have some misunderstanding of what he can do from a distance. But she believes in what he's capable of doing. And she is here expressing a profound, death-defying faith. 
And not only is she admitting that Jesus could have saved her brother, but listen to this. She also trusts that God's will has been done. Now that is a strong and profound faith. And this faith far surpasses what you see among the others who some will see this miracle. They'll see it happen and they still won't believe. As a matter of fact, people living in Jerusalem refused to believe despite Jesus' return from the death. And John writes this chapter for us. He knows the Christian story too. That even when Jesus came from the grave, some refused to believe. And this is why in the book of John, he always links not just the sign, not just the event, not just the miracle, but also the explanation of the miracle. Here's what it means. This is why it was done. Because just a sheer experience of the power of God isn't enough to persuade the human heart. We all think that. If Jesus showed up today and showed his power, everyone would believe. No. That's not always the case. These displays of Jesus' power can be easily misunderstood They can be fleeting. And if it does become the basis of faith, the event itself becomes the object rather than the one who's done the mighty deed. So it is with churches. You see, even when churches do wonderful things, and we're seeing churches, even in our community, some are dying off. Why? Because a lot of them believe that if we just practice social justice, if we just help the poor, if we just build orphanages and hospitals and ignore this This hard-to-understand story about Jesus, that's okay. No, it isn't. It always has to have the matrimony of word and deed, the explanation of why we minister to the children who are orphans, why we minister to the sick. It's because of the gospel. You cannot separate Christ from the message, or the message is going to be lost and forgotten. And church has become irrelevant. It doesn't take a church to help people. A lot of organizations can help people. The sign must be linked to explanation. A spiritual experience must be united with the gospel teaching, gospel preaching. And Martha demonstrates her trust. She'll reveal later that Lazarus will be raised from the dead. She's in no way attacking Christ now for not doing what she wants. And she's demonstrating this death-defying faith in both word and deed. And not only does Christ enable this kind of faith, he also exercises this power over death. Listen to his words, because Martha has misunderstood. Starting at verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She gets that. She believed Jesus was comforting her with a promise that they all knew about, a promise from the Old Testament. If you go back to Isaiah 26, 19, the promise is there. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Jews knew this. They understood there was this promise of resurrection. that Their loved ones would be raised from the dead. That was an encouragement, but Martha didn't realize She didn't realize just how literal Jesus is being in this moment. Because there's going to be a moment, by the way, there's going to be a moment when this is all the comfort that you and I have. 
something that Warren Wearsby said. When we find ourselves confronted by disease, disappointment, delay, and even death, our only encouragement is the Word of God. This is so true. And none of those things in that list are any respecter of persons, regardless of age or place in life. This impacts every single one of us. Jesus is going to push Martha, though, to a much, much deeper discussion. Something amazing is about to unfold. Look at the claims in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What does this mean? Jesus is speaking directly to Martha. And listen to this carefully. He doesn't want her attention to be focused on some last day when the resurrection comes. Many of us believe that day to be the rapture. It's a day I'm looking forward to. But what he's wanting her to do is, I don't want you to focus on that day right now. I want you totally focused on the man standing in front of you right now. And he makes two important claims about himself. First of all, he says, I am the resurrection. Now, what's that mean? He's saying, I am the one who gives to people life eternal. If you believe in me, you will enjoy confidence that you will overcome death. And this does not mean that Jesus' followers will not die a physical death. Poor Lazarus is going to have to die twice. But that life will be theirs beyond the grave, that they will not suffer death in eternity. And then secondly, he says, he's the life. Now again, he is telling her, I don't want you to set all of your heart hopes, all of your heart joy on this day way out there that you don't know what it is. He's saying something different. He's saying, I want all of that joy and hope that you've got set on that day put on me right now. You don't have to wait till some far off date that you don't know what it's going to be to have the kind of hope and joy that we're talking about here. I'm saying that it's available to you right now with me. I am the resurrection and I am the life. You don't have to wait to the end of human history to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' power right now. So we don't want to think of resurrection so much as an event that you won't be satisfied until it happens, but think of it as a person. And again, whatever joy your heart may be set on in that future event, you can set it on Jesus Christ right now. Resurrection joy is available to you today. And I'm going to keep saying that because I don't think you believe me. That's okay. Jesus Christ then puts the question to Martha, do you believe this? Then she responds in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She said, I believe. She's got a confident trust. And what does she believe? 
where she believes that he's the Christ. And we've talked about this before. This is speaking to both trust and assent. I've got the information, but I don't just have the information. I believe it to be true. I've likened this to a, a boat on the side of a ship, right? So you're on a cruise ship. You find out it's sinking. And then you look over, and they're starting to take the covers off these other boats. And you see that other boat. You know what it's for. That boat is meant to save lives. They call it a rescue boat because it's supposed to rescue. Intellectually, I understand what that is. But it won't do you a bit of good till you actually jump into the boat and you get away from the sinking cruise ship. See, that's trust. It's not just having in the information. It's in your heart, you're willing to put your faith in it. That's where Martha is. That's where Christ wants all of us to be. She understands he's the Christ, as the anointed one, the ones they've been looking for, they've been expecting. He was the son of God. I'm not sure she totally understands what all that implies. I guarantee you she doesn't. After 2,000 years, we're still getting this together. All the implications of what Jesus came and did. He proceeds then to do what he came to do. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus is the one, you could translate that, who comes into the world. Not everyone is going to believe, though. Even those that, that knew he was dead for four days in the tomb didn't get it. Look at verses 45 and 46. Then many of the people who had come with Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and reported to them what Jesus had done. They don't get it. They don't get it. You had two very distinct people here. You got some who were getting it who were aiming at heaven. You've got some who didn't get it who were aiming at earth. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. If you aim at heaven, if you put your faith in Christ, you don't just get the life to come, you get life right now. You get it right now. Resurrection, joy today. But if you miss out on Christ, you lose both. I don't care what kind of lifestyles of the rich and famous you see on TV. Forget it. That's going to disappoint. So we're given these two wonderful promises in this passage. Joy today because Christ is the life and hope for tomorrow because Christ is the resurrection. Now, what does this look like in our own lives? I want to, I want to suggest a few things here. First of all, it means that we can... It means that we can grieve well. It means that we can grieve well. Paul said in his epistle that we grieve as those who have hope. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope that when we lose someone, we will see them again if they put their faith in Christ. But we do grieve. We do grieve. In some Christian circles, maybe you've seen them and maybe you've experienced this, they, uh, they so embrace Christ's power over the grave that like grieving and mourning is sort of looked down on. Uh, it's almost like uh, someone is demonstrating a lack of faith if they're sad about losing somebody. Well, you shouldn't be sad. You're going to see him again someday. Don't ever tell somebody that. Please don't ever tell somebody that. You know, it's, it's true in a sense, yes, celebra uh, 
funerals are a celebration of life. They're, they're a victory over death when someone's put their faith in Jesus. But it also denies this human need we have to express sorrow and dismay that comes with loss. Now think about what we just read. You've got Mary and Martha crying. Jesus did not come up to them and say, if you believe in the resurrection, Mary, Martha, why are you wasting your time in tears? Did you ever hear those words come out of Jesus' mouth? No. He never said that. He did not say to Mary, if you have victorious faith, you should stand clear-eyed and confident because I'm here. No. He does something quite the opposite. He generously gives them permission to grieve because what does Jesus do? He weeps. Does he know what he's going to do? Yeah, he's already said it like four times in this chapter. I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to raise him from the dead. But he still grieves. He's deeply troubled, as a matter of fact, the passage says. And it's right to describe death as terrible and painful and horrible without compromising the quality of our faith. And Jesus himself cried in anger at the wreckage that, that death had brought to this family that he's seeing right in front of him. Death is a foe that is being defeated, but we still experience this death. So we grieve, but we grieve well. We grieve as those who have hope. And then secondly, we can find joy today. You can find joy today. And yes, I said it. And you may be thinking, no, no, Chad, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand the misery that I'm in today. You don't understand how hellish my life is right now. Now, hear me very carefully. There is a difference between joy and happiness. I believe that Jesus was a joyous man his whole life, but as you just saw it, he wept. He was not immune to the pain that this life brings, and it does bring pain. But I believe that joy can be independent of circumstances. Happiness is not. Happiness is an emotion you feel as a result of favorable circumstances, but that's not joy. I found a definition of joy. I've used it before. I just, um, I, I love it. It's joy is a deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. Deep and abiding assurance that God's in charge. When things feel like, feel like they're spinning into chaos, God's in charge. There's a, man named Brennan Manning is a Christian author, and he's written a lot in regard to this. Brennan Manning was a man who struggled uh, off and on with alcoholism. And you can be a follower of Christ, and you can still have your struggles. He did. He was also a brilliant man. Uh, listen to what he uh, wrote in regard to what makes us sad and what makes us glad. He said this. He said, to ascertain where you really are with the Lord, recall what saddened you the past month. Was it the realization that you do not love Jesus enough? That you did not seek his face in prayer often enough? That you did not care for his people enough? Or did you get depressed over a lack of respect, criticism from an authority figure, your finances, a lack of friends, fears about the future, or your bulging waistline? Conversely, he said, what gladdened you over the past month? Was it reflection on your being part of the Christian community? Was it the joy of saying slowly, God, you're my father? 
The afternoon you stole away for two hours with only the gospel as your companion. I love that. A small victory over selfishness or the sources of your joy. A new car, a new suit, a great date, great sex, a raise, or a loss of four inches from your waistline. You see, there's a much, much deeper joy available to you and I. And the degree that we can believe this will be the degree that we can enjoy God no matter our circumstances. I'm not saying that's easy. Trust me. I get wrecked some days by all the things on his list. Satan is always going to try to steal your joy in any way he possibly can. He's going to convince you to hold grudges against others. This past week, I was reading that one of the biggest sources of depression that we have is an inability to get over our grudges towards other people. And they stack up, and they stack up, and before you know it, you're dragging 50 anchors behind you, and only you've got the power to let it go. If he can keep you from forgiving, he will keep you from forgiving. Or you have to be perfect for other people to accept you. I don't deserve to be loved or accepted if I'm not meeting a certain set of standards. And Christ says, my identity is enough. And again, the degree to which we can get this will be the degree to which we can experience true joy in Christ. And if you're asking yourself the question, where is this big payoff in Christianity? My first question is, are you meditating on what God says you should be meditating on? Or is Satan coming in and waylaying you with the first thoughts in your mind as who you're still holding a grudge against what are my finances like? What is the future going to hold? We don't know those questions. We don't know the answer to those questions. Christ says that identity in me is enough. And then finally, by facing death with courage. Facing death with courage. I'd also add with peace. It can be so. It was a story I read once. It was by Catherine Marshall. She was talking about a mother who was with her dying son. And it was a 12-year-old boy, he had an incurable illness. He's growing weaker. He starts to worry about what death is going to be like. And at one point in the story, he turns and he looks at his mother and says, Mom, what is it like to die? Is it going to hurt? She was caught off guard by the question. She was overcome with emotion. She walked off. She came back with an answer, and she said this. Kenneth, do you remember when you were younger, when you used to play so hard you'd You'd be too tired to undress yourself. You'd just fall asleep in my bed. And in the morning, you would awake to find yourself in your own bed in your own room. Do you remember that? Your father had come with his strong arms and carried you there. She said, death is like that. You will wake up to find yourself in your own room where you belong because Jesus carried and carried you with his strong arms. That's what death's like for the Christian. In Christ, you can find joy today, and you can find hope for the future. I'm going to turn back just for a moment to that story that I started with. This young man, they found Jesse Hernandez. They actually strapped a camera onto this flotation device and used to guide it along that sewer system to find the boy's location they found his handprints that he'd left along the way. He was found a mile east of where he had fallen. He walked 
He'd sludged a mile in that two feet of sewage. And they used these tools to find him, and they gave him his phone. He called his parents, and he actually he thanked God that he was still alive. And I love the way they found a creative way to find and rescue that lost teenager, because God also has a creative way to find us. And by the way, he found a woman in our congregation as an adult named Jane Paulson. About two weeks ago or so, I was able to sit with Jane. Jane just passed away about a week ago, and it was wonderful to get to share part of her journey. Through cancer, I got to walk with her for a period of time before her diagnosis, and I asked her what she was feeling. I said, are you feeling angry? Are you scared? She showed concern for her children, but beyond that, beyond that, it was nothing but peace. She planned out her own service about a year ago. She was a strong woman. She had a wonderful confidence and assurance. She knew that she was going to be with her Savior, and my prayer for people in that place is always the same. God, I pray that even now they would start to see visions of that heavenly home. Poor Lazarus. He got to see visions, and then he had got turned back. And like those firefighters that found Jesse Hernandez, God offers a creative way to find lost people. Because through life and death and resurrection and the saving power of Jesus Christ, he came to us. But God went one step further. He waded into a hazardous environment for us and for our salvation. And there he loves us, and he comforts us. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you have offered us life eternal. It's there. It's a gift that we accept simply by believing that you are who you say you are, that you did what you said you did, and that we are, in fact, sinners in need of a Savior. And, Lord, as we enter into this act of communion now, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. What a wonderful gift it is, Lord, that you've given us through something sweet to drink and a little bit of bread to eat, we remember again what you've done and what you've promised for us in the future. It's in your name we pray. Amen.